0: The Fourth Watch starts now! Hello everybody! You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be another paranormal history lesson with one of our favorite guest historians. We'll be delving deep into the ancient accounts of the demonic race of the reptilian entities, crossing over multiple timelines and cultural records. Many claim that the reptilian entities are merely a mythological conspiracy theory, but tonight... We proved the contrary. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the 4th Watch Radio Network, I call this episode, Reptilian Species Part 1, with special guest, Gary Wayne. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the 4th Watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. A couple quick reminders. Hollow Earth Chronicles is now on sale at fourthwatchfilms.com. That's fourthwatchfilms, all spelled out, dot com. Pre-orders opened last week and we are looking to ship out the first week of August. So head on over to FourthWatchFilms.com and guarantee your copy of the film today. This is a powerful and groundbreaking documentary that you won't want to miss. Also, there has been a slight miscommunication regarding the digital HD release of the film. Due to some licensing agreements, we won't be releasing the digital streaming version until October 1st as of now. And I do apologize for the inconvenience. But the good news is that everyone can get the DVD. We'll be opening up a link by August 1st for all international orders on the website. We finally have international shipping worked out with one of our distributors, which again will be open on August 1st. So you'll see a link on fourthwatchfilms.com for international shipping. Now tonight we're joined by my good friend Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. If you're not familiar with his work, I highly encourage checking out his website, which is Genesis the number 6 conspiracy.com we're excited to finally bring a series of two shows that specifically deal with the reptilian species and deliver solid information on a topic that often gets flooded with new age theories and I am stoked to join the conversation tonight so with that said let's go ahead and welcome on my good friend Gary Wayne Gary welcome back to the fourth watch how are you tonight Excellent, and so happy to be back with you tonight,
1: Justin, hoping that we're going to have a very, very interesting discussion for your audience tonight, and very much looking forward to it.
0: Well, Gary, it's always an interesting discussion for me when I have you on, so <laughs> I always laugh when I have you on because, like, my I mean, my mind gets blown every time. Yeah, we tend to get into
1: some very interesting stuff, don't we?
0: There's no doubt about that, and I know people enjoy it every time we have you on. You're definitely one of my favorite guests, and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Gary Wayne... You've got to check out his book, Genesis Six Conspiracy. I know I've already plugged it in the introduction, but Gen, Genesis Six Conspiracy, it's a book that's going to blow your mind. It's going to connect the dots of the reptilian Nephilim bloodline from the origin of evil all the way up until the end times. Like Gary takes it all the way from past, present to future and. And ties it all together. And man, Gary, I I can't even tell you. Like, the first time that book came in the mail, like when it first hit my hands and I opened it, and I just, I'm looking at 30 years worth of research. Like, (laughs) I'm like, wow, 30 years Gary spent on this book. To be able to hold a book in your hands that has 30 years of research. um, And I'm not a big reader. Like, I I don't read a lot of books outside of the Bible um, or pseudographical texts, but this is a book that I highly recommend. And, uh, man, we are going to dig into a topic that is one that you've covered in your book. And we've kind of brushed slightly on the surface of this topic uh, together, and that is getting into the species of the reptilian or the reptilian species. And this is an area where much controversy tends to linger. Um, Many people who talk about the reptilians or the lizard people, the snake people, uh, or the aliens, you know, a lot of different terms get thrown around uh, surrounding this this group of, we'll just say creatures, but we want to kind of slice through some of the conspiracy theories because not everybody who talks about reptilians are crazy, and not every person who talks about reptilians are part of this new age movement. And I think as Christians, we need to be able to join the conversation and rightly divide the topic so that we can set aside the the lies from the truth. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to be getting into the species known as reptilians, and and this is kind of a little bit of an umbrella. Of of creatures, but we are going to get into some different areas of it from a Christian biblical research perspective. So, with that said, Gary, tell us tell us a little bit about the history of the reptilian, and and then, or maybe we should start off by explaining what a reptilian is, and then getting into the history of it.
1: I think most people will understand a reptilian as an animal that's in the animal kingdom today uh and is a cold-blooded animal as opposed to a warm-blooded animal and i wonder whether or not that has you know intended consequences because we look at cold-blooded as sort of evil and uh you know against good and uh so that's kind of one of those allegories that i thought i would throw out right at the beginning so for, for people to think about and within the uh The understanding of these beings, we have several different levels of beings and many of them are referenced in in the Bible, even though people may not understand the reptilians in that sort of manner. So the first one that's the easiest sort of to talk about is is the serpent that is in Eden. And whether or not this is Satan or it's an Akash, as it's described in Hebrew, uh, and part of the animal world and all, what we do know about this serpent is before the fall and the consequences of the serpent participating with Satan, at least, or being coached by Satan, I think, as, at the very least, to, to deceive Eve and also Adam. This was known in the Bible as the most craftiest of animals uh, and an animal that could speak. So an intelligent animal that could speak. And sometime after, even immediately after, for punishment, it loses its intelligence, it loses its voice, and it loses its limbs. And so whether or not different varieties of this serpent had wings like uh, uh, like it could fly, like some of the dinosaurs are depicted, which would be a flying dragon or a flying serpent, um, it certainly is thought to have walked upright as well, whether or not it's an Egyptian uh, mythology with Draco or with uh, Gnostic Gospels where they describe it as being as tall as a camel walking on, on upright could do the work of animals and was sort of above most of the animal kingdom. So that's kind of the first serpent that we're dealing with uh, in the Bible. And then the other one would be the seraphim angels that are depicted and in a seraphic form would be lucifer or satan and certainly in revelation 12 we understand satan as the devil and the serpent and the dragon so again linking dragon and serpent together because in antiquity they're the same thing and then when we look back at, at, at isaiah 6 it talks about seraphim and the seraphim and the i am it means ones and the seraphs were fiery serpents and these angels in isaiah 6 surrounded the throne, and they had six wings. So they're at the top of the angelic order. And we know that they look like serpents because when we go to Numbers 21 and we look at the incident in the Exodus, and we have these venomous snakes that are attacking Israel, the word used there is the cash for those serpents except for one. And that's where Moses puts the image of a serpent on a staff, and that's seraph, or seraphim, and that protects and heals Israel. And then in Deuteronomy uh, 8, we also have uh, fiery serpents, as they're called, and that's 8.15, whereas the serpent goes back to the cash in Hebrew, and fiery goes back to uh, seraph, or seraphim, because the definition for seraphim are fiery serpents. And fiery angelic serpent-like beings as you take that back to Hebrew and this is the order that is known as the Watchers, the seraphims and they're the ones who go to Mount Hermon to to mate with human females to produce the Nephilim who are thought to look just like them So from a biblical standpoint that's a sort of a quick thing on the reptilians in the beginning.
0: Now let's let's kind of dig into the area of of Satan or Lucifer. And I know there's people out there who don't believe that Satan and Lucifer are the same. And and I realize that Satan can actually be a title for any and I'm not trying to be loose with my theology here, but in reality Satan is a title. Ha Satan is the adversary. And so technically Satan could be a reference to you know, in modern language, Satan could be a reference either to the individual or it could be a reference to the entire team of adversaries uh who are against God, the enemies of god but i i want to I just want to tag this little piece real quick Gary um before the fall of Satan, he was known as the cherub, yes, now, I don't have a lot of information on the cherubs like i, I mean i there's some information out there um I've done more research on the seraphs. And getting into the seraph angels, you're dealing with, just like you already said, you're dealing with serpentine qualities. And even they're known sometimes as even the, the the burning serpent or the fiery serpents. And and these things show up. And we're talking like in all these different religions, we have these these fiery serpents showing up and, as gods of other religions. And so that right there tells us that there's a connection with the reptilian worship in, in these different religions. And it does go back to the fallen angels. But how do you deal with the situation of lucifer now we know that he's considered a dragon okay we know he's called the old serpent the old dragon but how do we deal with the idea that he is considered a cherub before he fell
1: well i think it it, you know he's either a cherub before and a seraphim afterwards or he's both right because he is one of the most significant uh beings in in the uh angelic realm uh before he rebels and a cherub is, uh, you know, as it's described in Revelation, it also has six wings like uh, the six winged seraphim. Uh, also, you know, you can have um, wings of cherubs that have a different number of wings, but essentially the cherubs are always surrounding and protecting. And so maybe it's these six winged ones that are sort of because they have the most wings might project sort of that hierarchy with, with uh, Lucifer or Satan or Hallel or however you want to call him um, as being part of this. And he's also described in Ezekiel with uh, the these breastplate stones, and there's nine of them. And that's sort of emblematic of the breastplate that the priests of Israel had as they were uh, attending the in, in the holy of holies, and I wonder whether or not he was at that time before his fall actually maybe one of the high priests of, before God as an angelic realm, but certainly we do know that he's described as a serpent, so he has that 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 sort of serpentine look to him, and 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 perhaps maybe he can change his his uh, appearance that way as well. But I certainly look at Uh, Him being the same individual, whether or not he holds both titles, because he was a guardian cherub, right? And uh, also part of the the guardian seraphs that would be around uh, the the throne. And I think angels like maybe Michael are probably uh, seraphim as well.
0: I think it's interesting that... We do know that the angels, from from all of our research that we've done, and and even grounded in scripture, we know that angels can take on other forms. And and I know you yep. you've used the term changeling. Uh, I've used yep. the term shapeshifter. But yep. regardless, we know because the Bible says you could be entertaining an angel unaware, which means you would think that they're human. So they can take on a human yep. form, and and if they can go from an angelic spiritual form to look just like a human, then they can take on any form that's out there. I mean, there's really no yep. limitation. So. But it's also interesting, and I'm not, I'm not selling this idea. I'm just, I I think it's interesting, and this is one of the great things about, about biblical discussion is that it's possible that there was some kind of a transfiguration in the curse of Lucifer himself. Yes. That, like you said, it is possible. I know that's a theory out there that he was a cherub, uh, the cherub that covers, and now he is not a cherub anymore as part of his punishment. Uh, I don't know how that would work, but you know, God is sovereign. And if there's nothing in Scripture to completely debunk that, then we have to say it's possible.
1: Yeah, and also look at it from this way, is, is that we know that uh, that uh, Lucifer or how, whatever Satan, whatever you want to call him, was in Eden, right? And we also know that uh, the serpent is in Eden, and, and it's obviously being that's following Satan. So, again... Uh, from Ezekiel he's known as a cherub so is he both or did he become uh changed or demoted or whatever to being a, a seraphim but it's not a big demotion because seraphims are, are at the top of the angelic order anyways but the thing for me that connects them as being the same is you have Isaiah fourteen twelve, where it talks about how Uh, lucifer has fallen as it translates in the king james bible um as, as the name lucifer and then in luke 10 jesus is talking and he says i beheld satan as lightning fell from heaven and so i think he connects them as the same being so what when i when i look at all of the aspects i think they're the same but i also think after his rebellion, something changes, right? And I think you're you're probably bang on that. Uh, he maybe loses that cherub as part of his title.
0: I mean, technically, the the fallen angels they fell from grace. I mean, there's no other way of of, of titling that scenario. They fell from grace. They were in God's grace. They had everything that they needed to live and worship God and to operate. They fell, they rebelled, and they fell from grace, and and they cannot be restored. A lot of people think that the angels, there's going to be a time where the fallen angels get this this chance of redemption, but that's not biblical.
1: Yeah, and what's also interesting about Luke 10, 18, and this is maybe just going down a little bit of a path, but after it says, Jesus says that he saw Satan fell like lightning from heaven, he goes on to say, and he says, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. And I don't think that's a coincidence and very applicable to the subject. And of course, scorpions, as you take that back in in the uh Hebrew, that goes back to a crab, A-Q-R-A-B, however you pronounce it, a cat a crab, maybe. And uh these are also scorpions that are coming out of the abyss where the fallen angels and the worst of the demons are put in. And there's an interesting uh demon god that's in Sumerian that is uh Called the uh, uh, Crab well, melu and the Goeta Bilu, and these were large scorpion uh, gods with with these horrible, evil tails that could sting people, and they were also protectors. So, I'm, I'm, and I'm going down another line. We're not talking about scorpions today. We're talking about serpents. But in Revelation nine, after they come out of the abyss. Right. They had tails and things like scorpions. And in their tails, they had the power to torment people for five
0: months. In the Hollow Earth Chronicles film, episode one, Tom Horn breaks down the insectoids is what he calls them, demonic insectoids that come out during that time. And so it's interesting because we do see we see language used in Scripture that is, you know, the average man would say, well, that's a snake, that's a scorpion. But it's so much more. There's a demonic side to that in in the reality.
1: Well, in the Enuma Elish, where these crab uh, beings are um, depicted, they're described as large beings with the head and the torso of a man and the body of a scorpion avian legs so bird like legs and wings uh that, that that helped them fly and and very destructive weaponry uh depicted as some form of bows and arrows and they had the ability to sting their prey from a venomous tail
0: i mean that doesn't sound like a normal scorpion to me gary new 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 and they were
1: and they were guardians for some of the gods and they were created Originally, in, in Sumerian legend, by Tiamat or Lotan or Nahor, what we would know as Leviathan or a serpent-like being. So a direct connection, and it's probably why you have these scorpion beings in the abyss, right?
0: Right, and, and I always, when I, when I go back and I, and I study the passage in Genesis about the Nakash, and really, if you don't go and research the Nakash and understand the Nakash, then uh, the average person is going to be thinking, well, it's just a talking snake. It was just a, a python That was able to talk, kind of like how God manifested and spoke through a donkey, um, which some people still don't know that story. Uh, I had somebody write me and tell me, they said, I'd never heard that before. I had to look it up. But we do know that there was a satanic element of what took place in the garden, and it was not just a python, uh, which some some say. And and I've even heard people say that animals could talk in those days, which we don't have any reference in scripture to prove that. But the bottom line is, what happened there? That was a serpent. That was the serpent in the garden that, that beguiled Eve. So I, I definitely that's definitely a good place to go back to and start. I want to make one more comment, Gary, on the cherub. In dealing with, uh, we do have biblical reference that the two things that we see in Scripture that stick out about the cherubs uh, or the cherubims, as the King James says, we're dealing with their guardians and they're also worship bringers. These are two, two elements we see, because after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what we find out is that the garden was guarded by these two cherubims that were guarding the way of the tree of life. And, and so I do believe that Eden, and we're getting into this in the film, but I believe Eden now is inside the earth. And I don't believe that entities can get into it because it is guarded by the cherubims with the flaming sword. So uh, that's very important because a lot of hollow earth believers that are in the New Age movement, they say, oh, yeah, well, Eden is inside the earth and its inhabitants are supernatural entities that take people into the realm of Eden and teach them the ways of the hollow earth. This shows up in many accounts and we break these things down in the film, but that cannot be according to scripture because cherubims with a flaming sword are not going to allow any satanic entities into that region, at least from my understanding of scripture. But the other thing is, is that they they not only guard, but they bring worship. And we have uh, evidence in the book of Ezekiel about uh, Satan or Lucifer before he fell. There's there's references in there. If you study the passage, that he was bringing music, almost like some people say he was like a choir director. Um, but there's references that he would have had a beautiful voice or or made beautiful music with pipes. And some people can interpret it one way or the other. But I believe the cherubim brought the worship that was part of their goal, part or yeah. part of their duties. So. But I don't want to go too deep into that because that's not the reptilian side of things. But it's very interesting and it's important to hash out because, as you know, people always say Satan is a reptilian. But we also, and they say, well, seraphs are reptilians. But they say, what about the cherubs? Because he's he was the cherub that covered before the fall. So I think it's important to kind of hit that on the head before we go further. So I'm glad you I'm glad you drove that out.
1: Yeah, and and clearly, again, I mean, he he's described as in 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 there in Ezekiel 28 as. You know, having great wisdom, uh, which is part of what uh, corrupted him uh, by the reason of his brightness. Right. So, again, and of course, we know uh, Satan is also the angel masquerading as an angel of light. So and that's why light allegories are all all there. And that's why he was cast to the ground again in Ezekiel 8. So, again, you have Isaiah, Ezekiel. And Jesus connecting him to being one and the same being. So I think, uh, and, and then we have Revelation 12 where he's described as as a serpent. So however he gets to be both or one and then the other, we know they're talking about the same individual. At least, at least that's my opinion anyways.
0: Now this idea of a reptilian race. Getting into the the origin of that would be directly linked to the reptilian, or we'll say the serpentine class of fallen angels, which would be the seraphs. Now, that would be the, we'll just say the origin point of anything that would be called a reptilian creature or entity or being. Uh, Putting all animals aside, we're dealing with entities now. And so you have these seraphs, these fiery, burning serpents And oftentimes they're winged. Uh, You know, I mean, when you when you read about these things in the different cultures of the world, you find that they would fly. And so everything lines up that these serpent, these serpentine angels were majorly part of the conspiracy to create the hybrid offspring that we know today as the Nephilim.
1: Yeah. And again, you see, even though there's a few different images, and I think there might be a few orders of, of the seraphims or similar ones, or maybe they just take a slightly different face. But you've got the Anunnaki that are these feathered serpents, right? And serpents, feathered birds. And just as you have Quetzalcoatl as the plume serpent or the feathered serpent and all of the Central American uh, gods are of the same description. And You have the Thunderbird gods that are these feathered gods as well. So I think there's a consistency around the world as we look into this this winged being that is a dragon, which, which is the uh, same thing as a serpent, because they were the same thing in antiquity, as I already mentioned, and now put the feathers on them, and you can unite most of this order around the world.
0: Now, let, let me just ask a quick question here on, on what you just said, because you mentioned the Thunderbird. Now, there are there are, even to this day documented cases of thunderbird sightings on what we would you know as researchers we might call cursed indian land or um, indian land that is under what we would call principalities and yep. you find out that there's certain we'll just say portals or stargates that are referenced by the natives and they say that out of those portals and they are very strategic locations it's, it's isolated it's not just at any given place they have mountains that they say those are where the gods come through and they say that the Thunderbird will come through. And you find some different stories of the Thunderbirds. And and I've covered the Thunderbird as a possible connection with the Mothman phenomena that we that we read about about uh what was it, Point Pleasant. And um I, I did a whole breakdown of, of Point Pleasant and, and the Mothman. Maybe I'll re air the show one day. But the thing about it, Gary, is there are connections with what we what we call the Thunderbird in native culture, and then what we find over in India and in what they call the Garuda. Now, my question would be this to you. If, if there are angelic connections to the Thunderbird, then that kind of puts my theory uh, kind of down because I've, I've kind of assumed that the Thunderbird would have been some type of a hybrid entity. Now, I could be way off on this. I'll be honest. I, I could be way off, but I want to get your take. What are the possibilities of the Thunderbird being a hybrid um, or a demigod rather than being an angel?
1: certainly a possibility as it comes out of i think you mentioned garuda uh, out of the indian um, uh, religion as being an eagle god it was considered to be a cousin of the nagas so it's considered to be on par with them and almost sometimes depicted as a nemesis of the of the nagas or the serpent gods but again none of this is is uh totally clear coming out of the, the polytheist religion so over in uh, japan you have the the tengu and you have two orders of tengu you have a god tengu which is this bird-like uh, creature uh, that's also related back to the nagas out of in india so again there's a relationship there but they also also have offspring that have bird-like feather-like uh, uh, creatures as well so there are some demigods that are created as well that are uh, flying beings which are different than the normal offspring of giants that we would normally look like. So to answer your question quickly, I think there's a possibility that they were another order of angels and they also created demigods as well that we would know perhaps as the thunderbird gods because some of these aren't raised as high as Quetzalcoatl are, right? Right, right. Uh, Right. And, and just as you've got different orders of these Tengu gods in, in Japan. So I think it, it could be both. Or, again, it's just that typical violation against creation where they create other demigods in the physical world after their own likeness.
0: Well, it's probably fair to go ahead and drop this in there. Um, I had always been under the impression from my research that Dagon was the half man, half fish. Like that's always been where I've landed on my research. And I, I was up at Skywatch TV. We were having some dinner with uh, Derek Gilbert, Sharon Gilbert, and uh, Joe Horn and his family. We were having a really good meal, and I, I had ordered fried catfish. And they were like, "You got to get the catfish. They said it's the best here." So I got fried catfish, and I make a joke about I'm eating some fried dagon tail. <laughs> and we all we all kind of you know we all kind of snickered, and then Derek, being the scholar that he is, he says, "Well, you know, technically speaking," Dagon was not a fish god, and I'm like, oh wait, what? What, what? what did you say? And and then Sharon chimed in, and they explained that that's a misconception. Generally, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, they said Dagon being a fish god goes back to the false interpretation uh, by a man named Hislop, who wrote the Two Babylons, which many people quote him around the holidays for being anti-holiday. Um, and, and we find out that his book actually has some nuggets of reality in them, but the majority of his claims cannot be vetted with historical data. And so much of what people say about the holidays, um, they, they're pulling from this guy's book. So basically, when you check out his bibliography, you find out that a lot of his claims don't hold water with historic proof. Right. But anyway, so the bottom line is Dagon, I'm being told now, is not half man, half fish. And it kind of crushed me because I'm thinking, man, I've done a whole teaching on this uh, with Jonah. And and now I'm gonna have to publicly repent and explain that I misquoted. And so he's explaining that actually the fishmen, the half fish, half half men, go back to the Sumerian Opkalu. And the, man, fascinating topic. Matter of fact, I'm gonna have Gary on uh, I'm gonna have Derek back on to talk about this. But the Opkalu, some show up as half fish, half man. Some of the Apkalu show up like what you're talking about with uh with feathers. Some of them show up as, as part bird, part man. And I, I man, I go on so many tangents. I'm sorry, Gary.
1: They're depicted as fish gods. A lot of people know them as fish gods. Uh, I, I, I don't get into that uh, difference in the in, in the book that I write because I'm going down one of those rabbit trails and it's already a, a big book. But it's uh, very, very clear that that is not the normal understanding coming out of prehistory of who these uh, the Dagon was in the description of them. Uh, and the fish gods that they say came, you know, with Oanis that came out of the ocean. It's more like they came from across the ocean, but there's two interpretations on that. And, and I do agree with it that it, it's got nothing to do with the fish. It's just how you translate that coming out of, uh, uh out of ancient Sumerian and, and other ancient languages because they can have similar types of meanings, just as Hebrew can have several different types of meanings. So I think that's where the confusion is. But it is a rabbit hole to go down and try and explain.
0: All right. Well, I have done a great job of deferring us from the main topic tonight. <laughs> but, uh, but OK, so getting back on the reptilian idea. But, but it's good to clear up some of these things because these are good. These it are is. good talking points and people get very deceived by, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad information out there. And as I just explained, I succumbed to some bad information a couple years ago on Dagon. And I've kind of ridden on that. And uh, so, I, I, you know, publicly, I want to say that I was wrong. I was wrong about Dagon, and uh, you know I want to clear the air on that. But this idea—so we've got these reptilian angels, and these reptilian angel, uh, these angels, these serpentine angels, the seraphs—they came down. Were part of a major conspiracy, which we've covered so many times, of creating the giants, these hybrid Nephilim offspring. And so we now have not only serpentine angels but we now have a serpentine class of human well let's just call them humanoids if you want to go that route they're not fully human they're not fully angel but they carry the characteristics of a serpent and of humans so that is where the the reptilian class enters in to the human race and i want to pick up there and kind of get into some of the features of the reptilian humans the hybrids
1: yeah, I I agree with that. And you know, as we get coming down from prehistory, uh we get two different forms, uh, maybe even three if you if you want to include the Thunderbirds as uh another form of demigod, which some of the cultures do, um, but you get the warrior class, offspring of the Seraphim angels and the serpent gods, uh, and you also get the serpentine uh, priesthoods that are also offspring and they form snake brotherhoods of the religions that are going to house the polytheism of the different sort of uh, pantheons uh, around the world even though they're going to have essentially the same religion and so uh, it if we, we need to really sort of focus that this is not a Separate sort of event that happens either in Sumeria or in the Kishamaya or over in India or over in China. It's everywhere and they're all telling the same story of the creation of serpentine beings, some as a warrior class and some as a priest class.
0: Now, what's going to be the main, the, we'll just say, the main dividing factor? What's the biggest difference between the warrior class of reptilians and the priest class of serpentine reptilians?
1: Well, typically the warrior class are going to be the noble class and the kings, right? So, and if you go back as Nephilim as kings, they're all warrior kings, right, as they're being depicted, but... Uh, the priest class was always part of that organizational structure. And in, you know, some of the interviews that we did very early on, you have an organizational structure of the god that they're going to worship in the pantheon. You have the Nephilim king, and then you have the priests and the religion and the secret societies and the development of the magic and the knowledge alongside it. And it's the same organizational structure around the world. So, uh, the Nagas, uh, who are a serpent-like being uh, from the seventh heaven, as they're called in India, and are also the same class that starts up in China as well. And that goes through with ancient Taoism and ancient history of the Pangu gods and the heavenly sovereigns, and they're all dragons. And they're actually referred to uh, in many sources as being uh, – the Nagas from China that the, the Chinese accounts are talking about. And so this is a class of beings from heaven. And in, in in India, as I said, they come from the seventh dimension or the seventh realm. And they were referred to as, as the wise beings from heaven. And so we understand that as... In the book of Enoch, for example, as all of this illicit knowledge that is coming to heaven or on on all mythologies that these serpent-like gods are starting civilization, starting agrarian societies, providing education, teaching writing, teaching language, giving them everything they need to start a civilization. And the Nagas were also known to be shapeshifters, and they could also take human form in the Naga tradition. And this is coming right out of the various religious books of, of, uh, of India. Uh, so this is not uh, sort of legends that we're picking up. This is coming right out, of, right out of their holy books. And they began, as I said, monks and priests, uh, as to develop the religion and to control the people through the religion and to develop the knowledge. And this is very, very similar to what Oannes does in Sumeria. Uh, known as the Sabeti, uh, or, uh, yeah, Sabeti, Shem, 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 Tew, sorry, oh, and, or the Sabeti that's over in Egypt, which will also be known as the companions of Horus, or, uh, the, uh, the followers of Horus, and known by so many other different names. And Osiris, who is like a serpent god, is one of these ones, part of this group as well. Uh, I think a later version of Osiris, because he's, delivering knowledge after the flood to help start civilizations as part of the seven angels or not seven angels, the seven priests that escape the flood and start, you know, uh, civilization in China, civilization in India, civilization in, uh, in uh, Central America. Quetzalcoatl is kind of part of uh, that same sort of group in that sort of religion. Although I would, say that both of those are gods. So they, they seem to combine these seven sages or the seven rishi out of India, religion and mythology that starts the civilizations, or we're having seraphim angels, again, doing the same thing after the flood. You can sort of interpret that two different ways. But all of a sudden you can see how all of the cultures around the world are talking about a similar story. And just as you have in Cambodia, you have, uh, have uh, and they're called the Sri Kamboji, uh, as I recall, out of Cambodia. They believe that this was a reptilian race who uh, possessed a large empire in the Pacific Ocean, ruled over by one of these very powerful serpent god kings called King Kalia. Uh, but they were forced away and had to resettle in India, which started the, the Nagas. And they also believe that there were seven races of Naga. Now, whether or not that meant humans or that meant gods, it's not clear to me. But it's very interesting that so much of mythology and religions have seven cultic centers around the world.
0: Now, the idea of the Nagas, uh, this is one of those areas that we, that we kind of hit hard in the film – and when you when you start to study the Nagas, you find out. I mean, obviously, first first things first, they are reptilian, and some people call them snake people. Um, it's rare, but occasionally somebody might refer to a Naga as a lizard person. But uh, you know, unfortunately, people are going to mix up you know snake people, lizard people. It kind of gets you know switched around here and there. But technically speaking, by looking at the the rock reliefs, the carvings in the caves, the paintings, the idols uh, of Hindu culture. You see that the Nagas are actually serpent people. Um, they are, they literally have the characteristics of snakes and humans. And I mean, some of these, some of these reliefs, Gary, they, they're mind blowing. I mean, if, if, if somebody were to come into contact with one of these things looking the way they looked in ancient culture, I mean, you better check your underwear. You know, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the, the gist of it. Um, I'm looking at these things and I'm thinking to myself, I've never seen anything that was so. Specific. That's probably the best way I could say it. They are so specific in the way that they appear in Hindu culture. And I mean, sometimes you see them with the veil of a cobra behind their head. Sometimes you see them with multiple veils of cobras, like like almost like it was a multi-headed serpent. But they have human features with a human. uh, It's like a hybrid human snake face, and then they've got other human parts. So they can they can actually operate the same way a snake would or a human would. But the thing that gets me on the nagas. And this is, this is kind of wild, but they, they come down from the heavens, according to their, their belief, and then they now have made their home inside the earth, or, or we'll just say in the subterranean realm. And so you've got these under-earth kingdoms. Sometimes they show up inside dry earth. Sometimes they show up in the ocean. But the thing that always connects, there's always an affinity with water. Like we always see with the Nagas, sometimes the entrances into their kingdoms, it's the opening of a well. Sometimes they would enter in through the water and then down into a subterranean dry space. Uh, There's a lot of maps and we'll just say alleged maps that people have charted out to show where Nagas would operate and how they would operate inside the earth and come back up. But we also find out that with the Nagas, they are known to hate humans. They believe that humans are an inferior race. And so the Nagas are on record as abducting humans. Now, this kind of takes us back to the whole alien abduction thing. They would abduct humans, they would take them down into their abodes, and then they would interbreed with them, they would torture them, and they would kill them and eat them. There was a cannibalistic uh, ritual that would take place with some of the Nagas. So it was not like the humans would want to go find themselves a Naga to hang out with. And so I I think it's important to kind of show the connection between the fallen angels that many people call aliens and the Nagas because they both abduct, they both molest, they both interbreed, and they both hate humans. So yeah, go ahead. So when I when I consider this, I think back to the idea that there are these religions that you're that you're talking about, and there's a popular cult. I'll, I'll just call it a cult for the sake of our uh, you know lack of a better word. But there's a cult following in India even to this day. Where you're dealing with these men, they're clearly humans, or they appear to be humans at least, and they are called they're claiming to be the Naga people, but they don't look reptilian, they don't look crazy. No, they, they do look crazy, but they don't look reptilian, but they'll cover themselves in the ashes of dead people. Like they'll literally they'll paint their body with the ashes of dead people, dead animals. Um, a lot of times they'll use different types of herbs that they'll smoke, uh, hashish. Uh, different types of marijuana. Sometimes they'll make paste out of it, but they have this religion of seeking after the Naga and, and they, they kind of, they're, they're very strange. Some people may have seen there There's actually been stories that have been covered in mainstream media about this, this particular sect of Hinduism, but they're calling themselves the Naga people. And I, I'm just thinking to myself, if they actually came into contact with a real Naga, I don't think they'd be seeking after them anymore. Yeah.
1: Well, they're certainly, uh, and they're from Naga land and they're We're very much a warrior class as they take their cultural history back as part of that Nephilim sort of warrior class that I talked about earlier. And they also like to wear conical headgear, right? And they like to dress up with feathers. And I think they're, again, going back to that feathered serpent look that we talked about, uh, that they're, That they're worshiping and 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 they like to wear like canine teeth which i think aren't really canine i think what they're trying to represent is is that cobra teeth look just as the cobra is associated with uh the uh the kings of egypt and also and for just for the record i mean they also have the the falcon image which is that that bird image which again even though they had the ogdo serpent gods and osiris was a serpent god and Horus is more of a falcon god right so there's these imageries are closely associated but when you when we talk about a naga in in uh in India uh it is a cobra that they're describing specifically a cobra whereas a generic snake wouldn't be called a naga would be called a sarpa so they're they are describing a specific type of serpent, and in this case, one that goes back to the gods. And uh, they also describe uh, a female Naga that they called either a Nagi or a Nagina. So again, which is very interesting, but they had shape-shifting abilities, so they could take any gender that they would want in, in this world. And and again, they, they produced offspring. So whether or not these Naga people uh, actually go back to... Uh go back to uh, the real Nagas or not, they are certainly worshipping uh, this tradition of those ancient Naga demigods and gods. And the Nagas also carried the elixir of life and immortality, whatever that means, so that people would want to try and live forever through them or by worshipping them, but somehow they had some sort of elixir of life for immortality and they also had a specific holy mountain which again would be similar to what all the gods around the world would have and so and they, they believe there was good nagas and bad nagas, just as not all of the seraphims would have rebelled right and the good nagas uh were guards and they would protect from the divas and the divas would be the fallen ones or the evil ones in in sanskrit and all of the brahmin and and Hinduism and Buddhism religions that would fall, you know, down through that that lineage of passing on their history through religions. So, uh, again, just so many interesting connections with what they're talking about and what we hear about these reptilians from around the world.
0: Now, one la- one last thing I want to hit on about the Nagas in India is um, you have this this whole narrative surrounding the Nagas and you've got a, a rich history that anybody can research. Like this information, it's, it's mainstream, it's not hard to find. But you also find, uh, generally you're dealing with with the ancient cities of Patala and Bhagavati. But then you get over to Tibet and you find a shrine, a monk shrine, if you want to call it a monk shrine, I guess you could. Um, but there's a shrine, which is to the Naga as well. And so you're now seeing a connection, you know, miles apart. And then you go further into China and you've got another connection with the Naga people. And you get to China and, and you find out that they've got these shops, these like herbal, you know, I don't know what you want to call them. I'd, I'd probably try to call it more of a new age, um, you know, new age type, you know, magic, you know, medicine man kind of shop. But they've got teeth that they're selling in China. And I've never seen them in person, but I've heard stories that you can go to China and buy what they're selling as dragon teeth. And they're not normal teeth. Like they're clearly not the teeth of a regular animal or even a large animal. They're they're sold as dragon teeth. And I you know I tend to lean towards the idea that it's possible that these are the teeth of hybrids or possibly the teeth of, of what you know people would call a nephilim. But they'll grind up the teeth and then they'll ingest the powder of of the ground tooth. And this is an ancient tooth. This isn't like a tooth that they just pulled out of a, a person yesterday. These are ancient. And they they grind them up and they ingest the powder. And so there might be a connection between that and the elixir of life that you're talking about. Maybe a similar. Yeah,
1: certainly a belief there that they can provide immortality. Um, They don't seem to have that blood drinking sort of ideology, but they do have this ideology that you can. uh, You can uh, find this sort of fountain of youth, and that's actually how. The Japan culture gets started, and the dynasty descends out of the lead that dynasty. Is is one of the the royals and and part of the priesthood is trying to find this mountain of immortality uh, that uh, to bring back to the the reigning kings. That starts the Yamamoto dynasty. So again, they all all of these things descend back to the same sort of naga belief that comes through with the Brahmins and the Aryans out of Mesopotamia. And you also have this filtering down into Thailand where they call them the Thaya Naga, and they're depicted as dragons and in Malaysia as Sri Suman, uh, as a Naga. This is this is all connected because that the Eastern religion splits. Uh one goes into Mesopotamia uh and one goes into India, into the Indus Valley of this ancient Zoroastrian religion. Um uh, as they split away from Babel. And what's interesting about that in Zoroastrianism is, is, I mean, their god uh, is referred to as Ormaz, which is the serpent. And they even use the same type of uh, of names for the evil gods like divas. So there is a definite belief system that is all connected. And uh, through that religion of the Ahura Mazda, and because again they're the same religion. Um understand that Enki or Samel was called Ormazd, or the Serpent of the Night or the Ahura Mazda. And say and Enki of Sumeria, I mean he is described as the and depicted as in, in, in ancient glyphs as a serpent, and is the serpent god coming out of uh Sumeria and from Sam L, where samael comes from so sama is the town which he was the lord over as as that sort of history goes back to but he is definitely the 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 serpent god of of sumerian history and the one who is the enemy of onlil uh and again i just can't underline enough that uh uh, all of these things are related and just think of samael as in hebrew as meaning the venom of god or the poison of god and that's why you have these these poisonous uh, teeth that that elicit the poison in in the snake all of this is connected
0: when you're dealing with the venom that takes us right back over to the idea of these insectoids coming up in the in the tribulation and having a venomous sting uh, I can't help but to see that connection again. And, I, and, and so we're, we're seeing connections now, not just with the serpents, but with these other hybrid entities that are going to show up on the face of the earth.
1: Yes. And, um, you know, I think in. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, the verse that would be in Ezekiel, where it's talking about Ezekiel seven, I think. And it's talking about these uh, these beasts that are going to attack uh, the land of uh, Israel, and it's the, the, the noi, noisy beast. And if you take noisy back, it goes back to Ra, which is uh, uh, meaning totally evil. And, of course, Ra is one of those gods, one of these serpent, one of these Ogdo gods, these serpent gods of the Egyptian pantheon. Just just amazing how, at how all of these sort of things kind of connect. And uh, in ancient uh, Egypt, they had a holy crocodile that they called Cracos. And of course, Draco is Latin for dragon and Draco and Draconto, which are sort of the root out of uh, Egyptian or out of Greek means to watch as in watcher. And of course, Draco and Dracon uh, are, you know, the Greek meaning for serpent. And also you have uh, this word that sort of flows over into uh, Dracula or Dracul, uh uh, which means a dragon and the A means the son of a dragon. And of course that's what they base the vampire uh, tales on. And this is an allegory of the matriarchal bloodline of the dragon and the serpent. And of course they have the cobra teeth that they use to bite into the necks and of human beings, which is the same teeth that's on the vampire that they're talking about, that you were talking about with the Nagals or the Nagas in India that they do to this day. And uh, that gives this drag, this vampire immortality. So again, these allegories and meanings just keep rolling over and through time.
0: Now, in the next episode that we do, when we continue this, I definitely want to get into the the, the Dracula connection. I want to kind of move it up into the bloodlines and getting into, we'll just say, modern accounts. But for the time that we have left, Gary, um, let's kind of go through this this little situation of the lizard people and the snake people um because they're both considered reptilian and we we see both showing up in different cultures so like i mean you know the crocodile um lizard-like features snake-like features where where do you believe this this thing splits off into these two because obviously the origin point has to be the same the origin takes us back to the angels. So where at what point do we do we branch off and have lizard people and snake people as two separate entities?
1: Lizard people and witch people as two separate entities?
0: Yeah, because some cultures will refer to the the serpent people and then some refer to yep. lizard people.
1: Right, and they're they're the same. I think they're they're the same. And uh, they're just Using different words to describe the same thing because lizards and serpents are essentially part of the same sort of reptilian class. There may be a different distinction in there, or maybe there's some survivors of that the fallen angels did of the original serpent that's, that was in Eden that's a little bit different. That is more like a crocodile walking upright, which is why you have the depictions of the holy crocodile in in egypt and sobatak so that may be a distinction in the type of of beings because i don't think that was a being that would be considered a demigod it was just a uh, another form of intelligent being if we can understand it that way so um there are probably different subclasses in here but clearly i mean we get this offspring coming from the from the various gods out of Uh, of the the rebellious angels that create these demigods in all sorts of forms. So again, you could have a few different sort of splits as to what type of uh, being is being created, or maybe they did some intermixing of other DNA with that crossbreeding somehow, because they would have had the, the fallen angels had the ability to do DNA manipulation as well. So there's all sorts of different ways that they could create different classes of, of these types of beings. Um, So I'm not sure whether or not I answered your question or not, but.
0: Well, no, I, and I agree with you because as I mentioned earlier there, you know, a lot of times the lines get blurred. Some cultures say lizard people, some say serpent people. And we see, we see the characteristics of both in many of the paintings. And and like you said, we're dealing with reptile. I mean, that's the, that's the root word that we have in America, reptile, reptilian. And there you have your snakes, your lizards, Um, you know amphibians are in a whole separate class obviously
1: and dinosaurs would be considered reptilian as well and we didn't have a name for dinosaur before they made it up uh, a couple hundred years ago because they used to be known as dragons so even uh, those those ancient dinosaurs whenever they were around would be considered to me to be a reptilian type of being that would be a favorite species of the of the seraphim angels and also, I just wanted to point out, I missed this a little bit earlier, out of the Kishamaya, you get uh, a group of serpent priests that are called knuckles. And they're very, very similar to the seven sages. And uh, they're also believed in, in in these writings as they come down through the ancient writings. that And I know many of them were lost, but there's, there's writers like uh, LaPongian and, and Churchward who wrote about... Um, Some of the accounts that they got from these, the, the the priests. And what they said was, though, is that the, the Nakals were connected to Ra, their sun god. And in, in, in the, in the Kishamaya tradition, Ra was the sun and also the name used for Nakal. So, and these were again a priest class, very similar to the, uh, the Nagas out of, uh, India and related to them, but in most people's accounts.
0: Well, the idea that the Nagas would be able to enter into water. And uh, I mean, look, a crocodile can go underwater for a long time. A snake can go underwater for a long time. Uh, Even sea snakes, uh, you know, from what I've seen, sea snakes have to come up to get some air. Um, But there are some sea snakes that have gills, if I'm not mistaken. But that kind of takes us back to the discussion we had, uh, you know, a couple years ago, uh, or maybe a year and a half ago, when we first uh, did a show together, we talked about how there's a theory that the Nephilim would have been able to have similar attributes to some of these reptiles to being able to take a deep breath and go underwater for a longer time. Now, some people believe that the Nephilim would have had gills, but I, you know, and I've kind of leaned on that for a little while, Gary, thinking that it's possible, but if that were the case and they would have been able to all survive the flood, uh, if they had gills. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't believe they had gills, but I do think that they would have been able to stay submerged for a longer time than a human would.
1: You know, we certainly do get, uh, some things coming down through history that there is an affiliation with them to, affiliation with them to, to water and with the gods and that many of these portals that come down through, let's say, fairy mythology or the alien mythos has these portals underwater. So again, there's, there's an affiliation there just as you've got fairy domains around the world that are, uh, portals that, uh, uh, are designed to go into another dimension and Dolmen actually translates as portal. And just as you have through so many other sources, you have caves in the mountains, as you were mentioning earlier, as portals into the other world worlds, that's, you know, the Bigfoot uh, and the little people also are related to in going through caves. And so they can also go through shaves and fairy mounds. So there's this whole sort of underwater portals and portal thing that in different dimensions that, are also completely connected in, in every seemingly story that's around the world. Except that in every story in the world, we don't get the whole story.
0: Right, right. You know, but one thing we can't separate from our, our, our historical research is the connection to the fallen angels and a class of serpentine reptilians. This is one thing, like you said, it shows up all over the globe, all over every, literally every continent practically has history of some type of a serpent god, uh, a feathered serpent, flying serpent, burning serpent, uh, fiery serpent. Uh, the list goes on. It's kind of like the 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 old Forrest Gump, you know, where, where he's talking about shrimp. You know, Bubble Gump's talking about you know shrimp this, shrimp that, shrimp that. I mean, it just keeps going on. There's so much connection um, between the fallen angels and the serpentine class.
1: There's a description of these uh, gods in a Gnostic. Uh, gospel called the origin of the world and uh, they and they're they're talking specifically about the watchers as serpents and the description that they gave is that they had long narrow faces prominent cheekbones elongated jaw bones slanted eyes and thin lips and i make the case in the book and in many of the shows that i do that their offspring look just like them and then if you want to match all of that up you can go to uh, a, a King Tut museum and look at Akhenaten, and you're going to get that type of facial look. And this is like 2,000 years after the Nephilim are first come around the world. So even after all of that diluted bloodlines, you get that same sort of look. And we get coming out of, again, out of the Kishamaya, and we get out of Atlantean mythology and other ones that these are the same descriptions that the Titans had. And they either had red hair and hazel or green eyes or blue hair or blue eyes and blonde hair uh, as they come out of prehistory with that same type of look. So, again, we, we get consistencies of this whole ideology in all religions around the world. And then, of course, I'm comfortable talking about all of that because I know what it says in the Bible about seraphims. And, of course, the Aryans show up with this belief system. In the Punjab in the Indus Valley about 2300 BC. And they're bringing with them this, this religion that we talked about, you know, the differences between, uh, Zoroastrianism and the Sanskrit version that turns into Hinduism that forms the Brahmin traditions, uh, that go down. It's, it's they're the ones who take it to, uh, India and, uh, the Aryans, uh, the, the Nazis believe uh, came from Thule, which is their, uh, real, or their folkish idea, I'm sorry, not real, folkish, uh, ideology of, uh, of another type of Atlantis, or an Asgard-type location, as, as they would understand it. Um, so, they believe that the Aryans, uh, escaped out of Tartarus, uh, in Scythia, and, you know, migrated north and west and east and all over the place, and these were the giants of the, the Titan rebellion. And so, believe me, they take these beliefs back to prehistory. And so this is not uncommon. That's why you have a depiction of Dracula as the other description, because he typically has hazel or green eyes and red hair, right, just as Vlad would have had. And again, we get these Peruvian skulls and the North American skeletons and skulls coming with red hair. Uh, just as the Tuatha Danon were thought to have the red hair and the green eyes as the other sort of version of these these giants coming out of Scythia these and you cannot discount that this is all being kept alive for a reason it 's their belief they believe it 's their history, and we 're going to see all of this come about in the end time being thrown in our face that we 've been totally misled a by science and b by christians in the bible as to what happened in prehistory
0: well gary let everybody know in closing uh, how they can follow your work and keep up with what all you're doing
1: well the best way to follow my work is probably through facebook uh and you can contact me there or through my website genesis6conspiracy.com but follow me under gary wayne or my two genesis six uh, conspiracy pages and i'm posting you know several times a week with interesting stuff uh that either connects into the subject or just interesting things about the Bible that you might be interested in. But all of it will be thought-provoking. Uh, if you do get a hold of me, I will get back to you if you have a question. And also you can follow me on Twitter at GaryWayne63 at Gary wayne 63
0: Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on The Fourth Watch, and we really look forward to having you back on again really soon to continue our discussion on The Reptilians. Until the next time we talk, Gary, God bless, and have a good night. Well, that was an interesting discussion and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In thinking about reptilians and the serpent tempting Eve in the garden, I am reminded of how easily we are tempted to sin. I've recently received multiple emails about people battling different types of temptation. Unfortunately, we will be tempted in this life, but I want to encourage you with scripture. Let me take you all to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now let me break this down. There is no temptation that you're going to face that isn't common to man. This means whatever you're facing, it's not new. You can take this to the bank. And furthermore, you're not the only one facing it or who has faced it in the past. There is no reason for you to justify sin, even if you feel like you're the only one who knows what it's like to be tempted with such a sin. Temptation can be a struggle, and I know we can all agree on that. But regardless of the degree of temptation that you're dealing with right now, God is faithful. And in his faithfulness, he will not allow you to be tempted above your ability on a personal spiritual level. This means that all the temptation you face has been pre-approved by God. Let me say that again. Every temptation that you will face has been pre-approved by God. And he has made sure that it won't exceed your ability to rebuke it. Now, you may be inviting heavy temptation into your life by opening up doors of wickedness. We often do this with certain behaviors, the people we hang out with, uh, the activities that we partake in. And this is a totally different scenario. But temptation has to be approved by God. Before it hits your local market if you don't believe this go read the story of job paying special attention to the process That satan had to go through before he could attack job So not only does god have to pre-approve the temptation before you face it But according to this passage, god will always make a way for you to escape the temptation He will always provide an exit door, but here's the challenge. We have to understand the exit strategy This is vital We need to investigate how Jesus dealt with temptation in order to better recognize the exit door that God provides us with. When tempted of Satan, Jesus rebuked the temptation with scripture. So we need to know the Bible and we need to hold it in our hearts so that we have an arsenal of weaponry to win the battle. I recommend studying the temptation of Jesus in the gospels to better see this in action. But let me share one of my exit strategies for temptation. Whenever any type of lust or impure thought enters into my mind, I immediately quote Philippians 4.8. I declare that I am going to think on things that are pure and lovely and true. I declare that I'm going to think on things that are praiseworthy unto God. And then I rebuke the temptation. I command it to leave by the authority given by Jesus. And I begin to worship the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, immediately those lustful thoughts, those temptations flee with a quickness. Because I make my declaration of faith right out of the word of God. So knowing the word of God and believing it are the pillars of your exit strategy when faced with sin. We cannot forget that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. And I encourage you to hold fast to this passage and to hide it in your hearts. I recommend memorizing it because temptation is a prowling beast that rarely sleeps. But with the word of God and with faith in Jesus Christ, you can slay that beast every time. Praise God. Knowing that God always equips his children with everything needed for life and godliness is an assurance that we cannot take for granted. Now, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never entered into the family of God, stay tuned and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation until the next time we meet again. God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and savior, and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins. It is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of his word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins, and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but he is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, he is willing to meet you right where you are and he will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life but only through Jesus Christ our lord romans chapter 6 verse 23 i am so thankful that god sent his only begotten son jesus christ to die on the cross a living sacrifice who shed his sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before god on that day of judgment and make no mistake There will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, forthwatchradio.com. All spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com. F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com. Fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options. And every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If The Fourth Watch is ministered to you, and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless, and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.